Years ago, Chelsea and I accepted what was, I think far and away, our most difficult foster placement. A young man came to us, and I remember uh, I was in Philadelphia at the time with a buddy uh, having Indian food. It's the only time I've had Indian food, and it was terrible. I didn't care for it. Uh, but Chelsea called me, and she is telling me about our potential foster child, and she is listing off his litany of needs. Uh, he has allergies to all eight major food categories, which means he can eat uh, not much, <laughs> and, and we didn't. I, I didn't that year or so when he was with us. He, he had skin, his skin would manifest his allergies, and so he would scratch uh, to the point of bleeding. Right? This happened so consistently that if you saw his skin, it was a tapestry of, of little scars. It looked so much ingrained that you, you wouldn't quite notice unless you knew what you were looking for. Nevertheless, we, we took him in and, and delighted to have him. I, I can remember in the evenings, uh, you would have to lather him up in Vaseline, uh, you know, head to toe, especially on his arms and legs, uh, and then wrap him with saran wrap around his arms and, and legs in order to try to trap the moisture in to help treat uh, the, the allergies, which would be manifested in his skin. He, I mean, he's a little guy. He's only, what, two at the time-ish. And you had to put a little hairnet on him, the, the whole nine. My guy had a lot of needs some needs of some people are immediately obvious and visible. Yet, if Jesus is to believe, to be believed, the greatest need of every person is not visible but invisible. It's not physical but spiritual. Man's greatest need, according to the Bible, is forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with the God he has rebelled against. We come to Matthew chapter 9 and verses 1 through 8 this morning, and the main idea is this, Jesus forgives sins, indeed Jesus Christ forgives sinners. Your outline is there before you in five little parts or scenes uh, that we sort of have. Um, we'll work through it just like usual. Let me pray, and we will begin our time together this morning. Father, this is your day, the heavenly ordinance of rest, the open door of worship, the record of Jesus' resurrection, which is built into the normal warp and woof of our weeks. It is the seal of the Sabbath rest that is to come when Christ returns. It is on this day when the saints militant and the saints triumphant unite in endless song before you. We bless you for the great throne of grace. We bless you that we can come before you where your favor reigns. We thank you that we can come before you through the blood of Jesus. We thank you that the veil of separation is torn aside. We can come to you knowing that you are ready to listen to us, your people. That you are waiting to be gracious to us, your people. That you invite us to pour out our needs before you promising to give to us more than we ask or think, and to give us precisely what we would ask for if we knew everything that you knew, God. What a wonderful occasion it is to gather together with your people to give you worship. Father, we ask this morning that as we listen to your word opened and explained, that it would be explained accurately. We pray that you would help me to preach a better sermon than I have prepared. And we ask that, indeed, you would flood all of our minds with peace beyond understanding. That our thoughts before you during this time would be sweet. And that we would drink deeply 
of the streams of living water that flow forth from your throne. Let us feast upon your precious word this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give ourselves a little bit of context here in Matthew. Remember, there's two sort of five-chapter segments that we have been dealing with thus far in the book. And I'm just saying ish because that's just sort of a general approximation. Uh, Matthew's goal in the whole book is to present to us Jesus as the promised Messiah King who brings God's blessing to all nations. Matthew wants us, when we finish his gospel, to bow down before Jesus as our Lord and our God. And so he opens up the book for us by laying out Jesus' qualifications to be king, his credentials. That's the first five-ish chapters. And then in chapters 5 through 10, 11-ish, he shows us Jesus' authority. Jesus acts with the authority of the king. And so early on, under that sort of, if you are picturing it in your mind, like a file folder on a computer, under that file of Jesus' credentials, we see uh, immediately in chapter 1 that Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the king because he has the right pedigree. He comes from the right family. He is the promised son of David. He lays out his genealogy for us. He's the son of David and the son of Abraham. He wants us to see Jesus, he comes from the right family. He, he can be this king that we've all been waiting on. And then in chapter 2, he shows us that Jesus fulfills the right prophecies. He says, look at his geographical movements as a child. He, he is a new sort of Israel, a new sort of Moses. His life is threatened when he's a baby. He has to flee from a corrupt ruler to preserve it. He's called out of Egypt, through waters, into the wilderness, and eventually to a mountain where God's word is spoken. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus fulfills the right prophecies and he is a, a new sort of Moses, a new sort of Israel. And best of all, under Jesus' credentials, we recognize that Jesus has the right endorsement. Indeed, it was by the power of the Holy Spirit and the plan of God the Father that he, God the Son, took on a second nature to himself and was conceived in the womb of a virgin girl. And Matthew tells us that he shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. God's endorsement of Jesus is made plain to us at his baptism there in chapter 3. When the Holy Spirit rests upon him, anointing him as king, and the Father's voice echoes out, Behold, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus has the credentials of the Messiah King. Then you're in chapter 5 where he's on that mountain of God, and he's the one speaking the word of God, and he's speaking and teaching with the voice of God, as if he himself stewards the authority of God. He calls people into his kingdom by calling them to himself and to holiness. He says, you want to enter into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of which I am the king? Well, you need to be poor in spirit and come to me in dependent faith. That's how you get in. And, and once you're in, you've come to me poor in spirit, I will fill you up with the righteousness that you hunger and thirst for. I will transform you so that you begin living life like a citizen of my kingdom. You will be distinct from the world. Yes, the way is narrow and the way is hard, but the one who hears my word and listens to him, listens to my word and does them, that's like the person that built their house on the rock. Things are going to go very well for you. Jesus teaches as one who has authority. That's sort of a hinge there at the end of chapter 7 in verse 29. It says, For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. 
Jesus steps out of the pulpit at the Sermon on the Mount. He's preached probably the greatest sermon ever preached. And on his way down the mountain, we find great crowds following him. And he begins healing. He demonstrates that he doesn't just teach with authority, but he wields authority practically. He cleanses a leper. He heals a centurion's servant with a word from a great distance. Jesus is amazing. He then calls those who would follow him to himself, making clear that the pathway of discipleship is hard. They get on this, those boats on that little flotilla to go over to a Gentile land, sort of a harbinger of things to come. And in the midst of their travels, a great storm overtakes them. And while Jesus is asleep, the twelve come to him and they say, Jesus, we are dying. Do something. And he wakes up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. And they ask themselves, what sort of man is this? Then they, they get to their destination an unclean land of unclean people. And two unclean, demon-possessed men come out of an unclean place, a graveyard, and they come before him, and they recognize what sort of man he is. They fall down before him, and they say, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Jesus then casts them out into a herd of pigs, which then plunges itself into the sea. And the people there in the city, are terrified. They beg Jesus to leave the region. And so when we come to the beginning of chapter 9, we find Jesus going back to his own city, back to uh, where he has sort of set up camp, a place called Capernaum, most likely uh, Peter's house. We're not entirely sure. But Matthew has arranged this material topically rather than chronologically. So if you've been reading through uh, the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, right? The, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, seen together, they talk about similar things. You'll discover that Luke and Mark have a different chronology than Matthew. And that's because they've chosen to organize their material in a different way for a different purpose. And Matthew has put this event where it is, the event we come to in chapter 9, the healing of the paralytic, to sort of show it to us as the climax of all that Jesus has been doing. He is one who wields authority over diseases. He is one who wields authority over the natural. He calms the storm. And he has authority over the supernatural. What, what sort of man is this? Behold the Son of God. And what we find in our text is he doesn't just steward authority over wind and waves, natural, supernatural, disease and demons and death. No, no, he even forgives sins. That's the punchline. That's the main idea of what we're going to see. And Jesus is going to heal a man, yes, but that's a footnote to what he does for the man. He forgives him of his sins. That's what Matthew wants you to see. This is the king that was promised, and he has the authority to forgive sins. It really is amazing. And with that, you know, just a small bit of introduction, we come to verse 1 of chapter 9. And getting into the boat, he, that's Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city, and behold, Matthew wants us to see this, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. It's interesting if you read those parallel accounts, they have a lot more detail to this scene than Matthew does. And that's because Matthew wants to put the spotlight squarely on Jesus. However, I think it will benefit us to sort of color in some of those details that, uh, Matthew, I'm sorry, that Mark and Luke give to us. And what they tell us is that these four men bring their one friend, so there's five men in all, 
they come in faith to Jesus, but it's not easy. Like, they don't just come directly to Jesus. Jesus is in this house. He is teaching, and it is a sold-out event. I mean, there is standing room only, and the people cannot get in. Our five friends can't get close to Jesus. And so what do they do? They get onto the roof. There's a flat roof in uh, the ancient Middle East, and they, they dig through it. They remove the tiles, you know, whatever. And they open up the roof, and they, they have their friend on his bed, his little stretcher-like thing, and they're, they're lowering it down through the roof, right? And Jesus sees this. He sees their faith. And his response, they're coming to him in faith. He says, your sins are forgiven. It really is an interesting interaction. But, but the first thing I want to put our attention on is that Jesus sees their faith. Their faith is outward and obvious. They believe in Jesus' power to heal their friend of his lameness. And so they are doing whatever it takes to get to Jesus. Yet I think it's important that we recognize their faith does not earn the forgiveness of sins. Their faith does not merit the eventual healing of the lame man. Faith is not a work that you and I perform. I'm going to say it fancy. Faith is not meritorious. It is instrumental. Faith receives and relies. Our faith is a gift from God through which we receive the gracious love and gifts of God. Faith is how we rely on God rather than ourselves. So you can think of it like this. Maybe uh, you are trying to go ice skating and there's a pond stretched out before you that is frozen over and you've got you know maybe your wife there and some kids there and you're like we're we think we can skate on this ice but we're we're not exactly sure <laughs> if it's thick enough and so you do that thing you get like a little rock in your hand you kind of throw it out good dunk no cracks all right you find the you know the poor unfortunate soul who gets nominated to walk out first right and maybe find your smallest kid or, or the one you least like. Send him on out there, you know. Go on, Johnny. Get out there. They're like, he's, he's walking out very slowly on the ice, you know, just waiting for that sort of, you, hear, you can hear it creaking and cracking. Like, but, but there's no big, long sort of fault lines in the ice. And then he gets out there and he does that little bounce up. And then he says, hey, hey, this is all right. This is all right. And then, you know, he sends a couple more people out. And eventually you go, whoa, it seems like this ice can hold us. And before you know it, you are ice skating. Here's a point. The ice's ability to hold you up in such a scenario is not dependent upon the weight of your faith when you step out onto it. It doesn't matter how much you believe that the ice is going to hold you. If it's only an inch thick, you are going to be wet. So whether you step onto the ice with this great heavy faith or, you know, itty bitty little faith, if the ice is thick enough, if it has the right strength and integrity, it will hold you up. What is my point? My, my point is to say faith receives and relies. It doesn't earn. And so what, what is important when we come to thinking about Christianity is to recognize that our faith does not produce or create God's work in our lives. It merely receives God's work in our lives. What's important to us is not how much faith we have, but who our faith is in. Faith is ultimately not valuable because of how strong it is, but because of where it is. It's not the amount of faith that makes you right with God or allows you to receive God's blessing. It's the object of your faith. 
your faith is only as good as what your faith is in. Sometimes during this time of year, you go into houses, even mine, and you might find little placards that say things like, believe, have faith. And I always want to go, believe in what? Have faith in what? Because faith in faith is nothing, you know? Faith in you know, the Raiders or the Jets, that's going to be disappointing. But where is this faith? And, and what do I expect the place that my faith is in to do for me? When it comes to man's greatest need, forgiveness of sins, being made right with God, there is only one place that we can put our faith that is of any value. And it is a person, Jesus Christ. These, these men are coming. They don't have that sort of big picture. They recognize this Jesus is healing people. And we believe he can make our friend well. And so in faith, they lower their friend down through the ceiling. And Jesus sees their faith. And he says, verse 2, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And part of me wants to go like, Jesus, what are you doing? Right? Is he, is he sort of like the, uh, the mom who on Christmas morning the kids are unwrapping the gifts and they're like, I can't wait, you know, is this the awesome gift I asked for? And they get through it and, oh, I, I love this sweater. It's just what I wanted. Or like, here are some pencils and paper for you, you know, here's a math book. I mean, maybe some kids are into that, I don't know. You know, like sort of disappointed, like I'm glad to have gotten a gift, but this, this isn't what I was asking for. Right, is Jesus just a, a sort of not a great gift giver? Not really reading the situation right? Sort of expect one of these guys with the friend to object. Actually, Jesus, um, forgiveness of sins is not what we were looking for. Uh, he, he's, he's lame, you see. He can't walk. Like the, he'd like to walk. Paralytic's immediate need is obvious. The great physician, however, sees more clearly than we. And his gift is far greater than walking. He gives the man forgiveness of sins. After all, it would be little benefit to the paralytic that he be granted legs to walk upon, only to walk into an eternity under God's wrath. His greatest need was not his health, but forgiveness of sins, even if he didn't recognize it. I wonder if you can relate to this a little bit. You come before the Lord in prayer, there's something that you want, maybe even something you need, a good thing. And yet, he doesn't give it to you. He gives you something else, and you can't, can't quite understand why he would give you this instead of what you asked for or how it could be good. One thinks of Paul asking God to take away the thorn in his flesh three times and the Lord saying to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not taking it away. Think of various sufferings and trials that we endure. God, why, why aren't you meeting this need? Why aren't you giving me what I, what I think I want right now? The answer is because God knows what we need more than we do. And he's good. He always gives us what is best for us and what is most needed to make us more like Christ, to draw us closer to him.
It is difficult to trust God sometimes. Perhaps even you come before him asking for one thing, he gives you another thing, and you can feel your heart sink a little bit. I mean, imagine the, the paralytic's heart probably sank here. Like, it's going anything. Jesus is going to make me walk today. Your sins are forgiven? Okay. I don't know how excited he was about it or not. It is an astounding proclamation from Jesus. But I think an intentional one. Jesus is well aware of what the cards are and what the situation is. The house is full, there are people all around, and there are scribes there. These would have been your Bible teachers of the day, part of the religious establishment. And Jesus, he wants to spark a little bit of controversy here so that he can make it clear who he is and what kind of power he really has. He knows the sort of rise he's going to get out of these scribes. And Jesus says to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. He addresses his deepest need. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming slandering the name of God, putting himself in the place of God, which is to belittle God. Blasphemy is punishable by death. And what's interesting here is that their objection is right if Jesus is anyone else. They're right. Because as Mark 2.7 says in his account, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Here's the part. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See what Jesus has done here. Placing himself in the place of God. Claiming that he has the authority of God authority to forgive sins. So the scri- I mean, this objection really is understandable. It really is a scandalous thing for Jesus to presume to forgive this man's sins. Because forgiveness, it's very basic, right? Forgiveness requires the offended party to graciously pardon the repentant from moral liability. Although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. And so, in my house, how this plays out sometimes, my children, believe it or not, don't always get along. And so there are scuffles in our home. And, you know, somebody punched me in the head or stole my food, you, you know, whatever. And, and they'll, they'll fight, and after the necessary disciplinary measures have been taken, uh, we'll, we'll take uh, one kid and we'll bring him to the other, and we'll say, all right, reconcile. <laughs> Chelsea even, I don't do this, but she does. She, there's like a little narrow hallway in our house, and she's like, reconciliation wall, children. Right? They have to put their backs against the wall and look at each other in the eye, and they usually smile, and you know, it's just kind of awkward. But what happens uh, is, is important. The offended uh, child, or offending, the one who did wrong, uh, will say, I'm sorry for punching you in the head, stealing your food, whatever. And the other child is encouraged to say, I forgive you. They hug and make up. They're reconciled. The the forgiveness has taken place. Repentance, there's been forgiveness. It's great. Sometimes I screw this up, though, because what will happen is one of my kids, the one that's usually coming out of timeout or, or whatever will come to me, the one who's done the wrong, and they'll say to me, Daddy, I'm, I'm sorry I punched my brother in the head. And instead of going, you know, go to your brother, you're the one, he's the one you've offended. I mean, I guess they've offended me because they've broken my rules, but just let's stay with the illustration here. Uh, I'll say, you haven't offended me, you didn't punch me in the head. And instead of doing that, sometimes I'll go, well, I forgive you. But really what they need to do is seek forgiveness from their brother, right? I don't, 
in that situation, have the right to grant forgiveness for a wrong that was done to someone else, not done to me. Or maybe if you want to think about it a different way, uh, I always use David in illustrations, and so he's not here, which makes it especially opportune to do such a thing. But let's say, uh, you know, he's notorious for being a bank robber, so he's really into money, he's a thief. And let's say David, while we're all in here in church, goes to each one of your vehicles and steals money from you. You pretend like you have, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars in your car. And so he, he goes out and he steals all y'all's money. And then he, he comes and we find out that he did it. And you guys are mad. You, you sort of want justice to be served. You're, you're willing to forgive him, but he, he's going to need to sort of make some kind of recompense, maybe pay you back, or you're going to be willing to absorb the cost yourself. There are things need to be figured out. But I step in, in the midst of the conflict, and I say, no need to worry about it, David. I forgive you. Don't worry about paying everybody back. Don't, wor- don't worry about apologizing to them. I forgive you. And I don't, that don't make any sense, does it? He hasn't taken my money. He hasn't offended me. And so I can't grant him forgiveness on your behalf. It's the, the one who is offended who has the power to grant forgiveness. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying to this man, the sins that you have committed are ultimately against God. And I forgive you of your sins. Your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees are going, this I mean, I know he's done some healing and stuff, but does it, who does he think he is? I think he's God, that he can forgive sins? Only God can do that. And again, they would have been right in any other circumstance. But Jesus is who he is. He is the Son of God. And this is the very reason he came, to forgive people of their sins. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Because God the Son took on a second nature to himself and became a man so that he might become killable, so that he could die for our sins, so that he could earn the blessing of God with his perfect life, so that everyone who trusts in him can have his righteousness credited to their account because he had their sins credited to his account and punished on the cross. This is what what Christmas is about, what what Jesus coming and the light dawns in the darkness, what that's all about is God resolving to come into time and space and history as a man to save men from their sins. That's what this is about. Jesus can forgive sins because he is God in the flesh. We've rehearsed this a few times now, but we've used the framework of talking about God. We say that we worship one God in three persons. And we've said God is one what? It's one God in three who's? Father, Son, and Spirit. And all of God is involved in our salvation. God the Father sends God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit so that he might live the life we should have lived, die the death we should have died, and raise victorious from the grave. It really is incredible. Jesus can forgive sins because he's the son of God, he's fully God, and because he is the son of man. He's fully human, just like you and I. He's going to attach that moniker to himself in our text in a moment. He's going to call himself son of man. And it's just his favorite designation because uh, it gives him both ambiguity, right? Anybody that dies is a son of man. And it makes an impact because any Jew worth their salt in the first century would have thought of the son of man in Daniel 7, who is a highly exalted and kingly figure. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. I'm the son of God. I'm the son of man. He has every right to forgive sins because of who he is. Matthew's bringing those things together for us. We see that Jesus is born of a woman. He's a man. But he's also born of a virgin. He's God. 
Jesus gets tired and sleeps in a storm. He's a man. But he also stills the storm with his words. He's God. Jesus is the God-man, and he can forgive sins because sins are against him. You go, well, okay, we, let's say that Jesus is qualified to forgive sins. How? How can a just God forgive sin? It would be unjust for him to just sweep evil under the rug. That would be an unjust action, to leave evil unpunished. You know, how, how can Jesus forgive sin? The answer is by paying for it. But Jesus paid for the forgiveness that he issues. And in the case of the paralytic, he gets saved on credit because Jesus will shed his blood. As for you and I, we, we get saved, forgiven of our sins, on debit. Jesus has shed his blood. Friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, you need to recognize that you are at war with God. That by ruling yourself and living life according to your own pleasures, you have offended the holy God that you were made to know and to worship and to love. And you need more than you need anything else to be reconciled to this God and to have your sins forgiven. The only way you can do that is by putting your faith in Christ who died for the sins of all who will trust in him. Jesus took the just wrath of God against sin on the cross so that all who trust in him, all his people, can enjoy heaven instead of hell. The mercy of God does not come at the expense of the justice of God, but at the cost of the life of the Son of God. Say that one more time. The mercy of God doesn't come at the expense of the justice of God, God is just, but at the cost of the life of the Son of God. Jesus paid for sin. Church, our forgiveness comes at the expense of Jesus' blood. And week after week, when we come together and we, we come to the Lord's table, we ought to remember this and rejoice. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 27, he took the cup, gave thanks, and he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus can forgive sins because of who he is and because of what he has done. Jesus has paid for the life of sinners. He's paid for the life of every person who repents and puts their faith in him. Non-Christian Receive this forgiveness. Repent of your sin. Put your faith in Christ. Pharisees think he is blaspheming and they have a legitimate objection. Jesus, I imagine, knew this was coming. And so with a, I imagine, a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face, he does the following. Look with me at verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home.
Jesus, seeing their hearts and their murmurs, knowing what they are thinking, says, oh, which is harder to do, forgive sins or to tell a man to walk? And it's obviously harder to forgive sins on the one hand. On the other hand, it's much easier to say to someone, your sins are forgiven than it is to tell somebody to walk. Why do I say that? Because one is immediately verifiable, right? So Jesus could say to this man, your sins are forgiven, and they would have no way of knowing if that were true. But if he tells the man to get up and walk, it's going to be obvious whether or not he has the power to perform such a feat. Does that make sense? And so what Jesus is doing here, he's like, it's actually harder to forgive sins, but I'm going to provide for you an example of my power, a verification of my authority to forgive sins. And so uh, watch this. You think I'm blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, uh, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. I I do love this. Jesus is mid-sentence, right? Verse 6, look at it there. Uh, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he's like speaking to the scribes. He then said to the paralytic, that was like broken comments, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Rise, take your bed, and go home. That's incredible power. And you know, we don't, we're not made privy to the thoughts of the scribes at this point, but I would just love maybe a picture in my Bible, you know, their, their jaws on the floor, or maybe a quip from Jesus, like, what's up now? Gotcha. It's impressive. It's It's amazing. He does have the authority to forgive sins. What's also more subtle in this passage is the response of the paralytic. I don't know, like, he, I don't know where his heart would be if he's rejoicing that his sins were forgiven or if he's sort of like, "Ah, I was hoping that I would be able to walk home today. I don't know. But there must have been some sort of exuberance poured into him when Jesus is in the middle of this controversy, arguing with the Pharisees, and then just turns his head to him and says, get up and go home. What a delightful obedience. Like tripping over himself to get up and get his mat up, like (laughs) getting out of there, right? The joy. He'd be like in our reading this morning from Isaiah 35, the lame will leap like a deer. I imagine this guy was was leaping all the way home. Imagine people in the streets. Is that that John? I, I reckon it is. Isn't he? Yeah. Or maybe maybe he had a family, I don't know. Imagine like little boy, little girl, they see daddy off in the distance coming, like run in and pull on the the hem of, of mama's dress. Mama, dad, dad come. Yeah, I know, daddy's coming. I, I love daddy. No, mom. He's leaping like a deer. What? How spectacular. How wonderful. We cannot know what happened in the aftermath. I do think it's profitable to think about, though. I loved uh, Alistair Begg speculated. He he wondered to himself in his message on this. He said the following. I I love this. Did he use his legs to make his way to the cross? Was he standing there at the crucifixion of Jesus, realizing in that moment at what great cost his forgiveness had come? Because, after all, He'd gone to see Jesus in order that Christ might deal with his legs, only to discover that Jesus came to deal with his heart. Powerful imagery. Would have been a delight to obey such a command. Get up and go home. Some of you are hoping I would give you such a command this morning. Not yet. Soon. I do think that it would have been a delight to obey. But then on the other hand, 
I think this was a hard obedience. Jesus tells him, get up and go home. And if you're anything like me, that is not at all what I would have wanted to do. If Jesus told me, if I couldn't walk, and then Jesus told me, walk, and I got up, I would want to walk straight to him. Give him a big hug, say, say thank you, I'm with you. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere else. You'd be like a kid at bedtime, you tell him it's time for bed, and immediately, like, no way, I can't do that, the fun is just getting started. That, that would be my feeling. And yet this man, against the grain of feelings, joyfully obeys Jesus. What a lesson for us. That sometimes our duty to obey the word of God will be a delight because God's always for our good. His word is truth and life. Sometimes it'll be a delight to obey God. And other times, our duty to obey God will be difficult. And it will require us to go against the grain of our strongest feelings. And yet, whether our duty will be delightful or difficult, we are always called to obey the voice of our king. It's a fantastic scene. Rise, pick up your mat, go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Fear is a good response to God. It has a broad range of meaning. I mean, terrified or reverence or in awe. And I think we ought to have a bit of all of them. It's a sense in which we should come before God in fear and awe as the Israelites did at Sinai when the mountain was wrapped in darkness with flashes of lightning and sounds of trumpets and God spoke to them and they trembled, their legs were wobbly and they said, Moses, you talk to us. If God keeps speaking, we will die. In a good sense, we should have a, a reverence and a fear of God's greatness, sort of like if you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and look out over it. You're awed at how incredible it is. And if you're smart, there is a little bit of sense of like, I don't want to fall in there. Be in awe of God. Fear Him as at Sinai. So we are to, to fear Him and be in awe of Christ as Thomas is. When the resurrected Jesus shows him his scars and Thomas falls down and says, my Lord and my God. Got to have that fear and awe of who he is. When we come to God, we, we, we ought not come casually. We're coming to you know, buddy Jesus. We should come seriously. And joyfully. And approach God by the blood of Christ with serious joy. When we behold who God is, the great one in three, when we see God the Father's love for us, sending his one and only Son to die for us, joining us to his Son by his Holy Spirit, so that he might become for us our adopted father because Jesus became like us as our incarnate brother. I mean, we ought to see the gospel and be wowed. The creator and sustainer of all things has loved you when you were in rebellion against him. Imagine just the extent of that rebellion. I always think of Genesis 1, God tells everything what to do and it obeys. Stars go here. I mean, he now, he continues to sustain the universe. Every morning he says, sun rise and the sun gets up. Stars come out. Uh, he knows them by name. You know, grass 
grow, winds blow. He controls all things and everything obeys his word. And then it comes to you and I and we go, no. How foolish and stupid. And God, instead of going like, really? And pouring out his good wrath on us? He chooses to set his love on us. To save us. To save all who trust in Christ the King. When we see who Jesus is, when we see that our sins can be forgiven, that we can be reconciled to the God who made us, we ought to fear and give God glory. If you are in awe of God, you will never be bored, and certainly not at church on the Lord's Day. Because you will stand amazed moment after moment that God loves you. That Jesus died for you. That Jesus is going to return. Call you out of the grave. To make the lame walk and the blind to see. To eradicate all sickness and death to cause sighing and sorrow to flee away forevermore. It's awesome. It should cause us to be full of doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let us praise the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it to change us, to draw us closer to you, to make us more like Christ. Pray that you would fill us with your spirit and that you would cause us to bear spiritual fruit. And we pray that all the while we would have our eyes set on you. Fill our vision with Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, our great God and King. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us, for calling us to yourself, for adopting us, Thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.